0: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, all of that without the hype and distortion of other media sources, and along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, along the way better educating the general public about Mental health issues. And welcome back to the show. This is the June 17th edition of Psychiatry Today. Apologize for the confusion last week and two weeks ago. uh, The podcast recorded for June the 3rd actually was not played until last week, June the 10th, and on June the 3rd inadvertently the May 27th podcast was repeated sorry about that technical issue there with um, America's Web Radio but we're uh, hopefully back on schedule this time and you know there are times when there's a very very difficult and painful story that I have to share with you that relates to mental health but um, nonetheless, if I say i um, doing a podcast about the latest mental health current issues, I can't very well ignore something, even if it's difficult and painful to report. And such is the case this week. Far and away, uh, the, the number one mental health issue that I've seen uh, take place since we last met is the staggering suicide rate among female veterans that has come to light. There is new government research that has found that female military veterans commit suicide at nearly six times the rate of other women, a startling finding that experts say poses disturbing questions about the backgrounds and experiences of women who serve in the armed forces. Their suicide rate is so high that it approaches that of male veterans, finding that surprised researchers because men generally are far more likely than women to commit suicide. Though suicide has become a major issue for the military over the last decade, most research by the Pentagon and the Veterans Affairs Department has focused on men who account for more than 90% of the nation's 22 million former troops. Little has been known about female veteran suicide. The rates are highest among young veterans, the VA found, in new research compiling 11 years of data. For women ages 18 to 29, veterans kill themselves at nearly 12 times the rate of non-veterans. In every other age group, including women who served as far back as the 1950s, the veteran rates are between 4 and 8 times higher, indicating that the causes extend far beyond the psychological effects of the recent wars. The data include all 173,969 adult suicides, men and women, veterans and non-veterans, in 23 states between 2000 and 2010. It is not clear what is driving the elevated rates. VA researchers and experts said there were myriad possibilities, including whether the military had disproportionately drawn women at higher suicide risk and whether sexual assault and other traumatic experiences that women had while serving played a role. Whatever the causes, the consistency across age groups suggests a long-standing pattern. The 2011 death of 24-year-old Katie Cecina is one of a dozen cases the Los Angeles Times identified in Los Angeles and San Diego counties. Cecina's death highlights two likely factors in the elevated suicide rates among female veterans. First, she had reported being raped by a fellow service member. The Pentagon has estimated that 10% of women in the military have been raped while serving and another 13% subject to unwanted sexual contact, a problem that has gained attention in recent years as more victims come forward. The distress forced Cecina out of the Navy, according to her mother, She said her daughter was being treated for post-traumatic stress disorder and depression at the VA Medical Center in San Diego and lived in fear of her purported rapist, who was never prosecuted, and his friends. Cecina had started writing a memoir and shared the beginning on Facebook. uh, This is a quote from that I would like to dedicate this book to the United States Navy and all the men and women who have bravely served our country with humility and have been raped and were brave enough to tell someone, she wrote. The second factor was Sassina's use of a gun. In the general population, it is well known that women attempt suicide more often than men but succeed less often because women usually use pills or other methods that are less lethal or at the very least less violent than firearms. Female veterans, however, are more likely than non-military or civilian women, I should say, to have guns. And this is backed up by data from government surveys. And, you know, whether we like to discuss this or not, and uh, I know that Second Amendment rights are very, very important to everyone in the United States, and that's fine, but the facts are, if there are lethal means available, it does make it more likely that someone is going to complete the act of suicide, and this doesn't matter if we're talking about civilian or military, male or female. Now for the 11 years covered in the online article that was in the journal Psychiatric Services, there was a greater disparity between the women's numbers than between the men's numbers. So let's compare males and females committing suicide among veterans, and then in the general population. Uh, they're both elevated, but the point is, the difference between veterans and general um, non-military population among women was far greater than among men. So among men, um, <clears throat> veterans killing themselves was 32.1 men per 100,000 population, Versus, uh, in among the civilian population, 20.9 men per 100,000 population. And this, the, the difference among women is staggering though. Among veterans, 28.7 females per 100,000 committed suicide compared to only 5.2 women per 100,000 in the non-military population. I mean, that is uh, unbelievable. Again, like the article says, it's almost six-fold. Well, it certainly is important that this extremely and severely alarming and disturbing trend has been identified. Again, the increased rates of suicide among our veterans and military population in general has been identified for many years and the Department of Defense has been making efforts to try to work on this issue. And, um, <clears throat> lots of factors have been talked about and identified. Um, and surprisingly, it's not the number of deployments or the rates of PTSD, but uh, actually pre-existing mental illness and uh, stress from issues at home seem to be major factors. But now that this alarmingly high rate of suicide among our female veterans is identified, <clears throat> hopefully the Pentagon can start working on on this issue. And so for all of us, what I suggest we do is, well, while support the troops makes a very nice, catchy phrase. What it really should mean, in my opinion, is not just focusing on those who are at the moment in harm's way. We need to focus on the people who come home and face a mess when they come home that's overwhelming to deal with. And because of the horrific experiences they've had, while serving, can't adapt to being back at home. And their spouses, who uh, may still have um, the member of the military being deployed, who are having trouble coping with taking care of everything themselves, these are the people who need our support. The returning veterans, uh, their spouses, in my opinion, that's what we should be thinking about when we hear and say the phrase, support the troops. Uh, and hopefully if there's enough of that to go around, it would definitely go a long way to reducing the rates of suicide among the military. But as for the very high elevated rates among women, <clears throat> um, well, I would have to say that the rates of sexual assault and rape are certainly a high factor, I would hesitate to say that's the sole factor. There must be other things. So hopefully further research will delineate uh, what other factors may play a role. All right, we're going to take our first commercial break. We'll be back with more after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
2: or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.atlantahealingcenter.com.
1: Thank you.
3: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Next up on tonight's show, creativity may be genetically linked with certain psychiatric disorders. There may be an overlap between the genetic components of creativity and those of some psychiatric disorders, according to a new study. Now, before we get into what they found, you know, just in general, there's always been this talk about the fine line between creativity and madness, per se, which, of course, madness is an outdated term and has a pejorative connotation, but just for the purposes of this discussion uh, there's always been uh, this stereotype or this talk about, well, uh, looseness mental health-wise can often uh, be associated with creative genius in some way. Sadly, we just lost the great mathematician uh, who died with his wife in a car wreck. It's a perfect example of this, uh, the man who is the mathematician um, who's suffered from schizophrenia, whose life became the subject of the movie A Beautiful Mind. So that's a, a real-life example that a lot of people can relate to, to just illustrate this association. Now, this study that we're talking about, researchers looked at genetic material from more than 86,000 people in Iceland and identified genetic variants that were linked with an increased risk of of either schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. The investigators then looked for these variants in a group of more than 1,000 people who were members of national societies of artists, including visual artists, writers, actors, dancers, and musicians. The study revealed that the people in these artistic societies were 17% more likely to carry those variants linked with the mental health conditions than were people in the general population who were not members of these societies. The results of this study should not have come as a surprise, because to be creative, you have to think differently from the crowd. Now, the same authors had previously shown that carriers of genetic factors that predisposed to schizophrenia, allow this type of thinking. The investigators also looked at the link between creativity and psychiatric disorders using a different data set from four studies previously conducted in the Netherlands and Sweden, which involved about 35,000 people, a much larger study group, and therefore you can derive more robust data. This group included people who worked in the fields of visual arts, music, dance, writing, and theater, as well as those who worked in other professions. This study showed that the people who worked in the creative professions were almost 25% more likely to carry the genetic variants related to the psychiatric disorders than were people who worked in other occupations. In a previous study, published in 2013 in the Journal of Psychiatric Research, the researchers found that when they compared all people working in creative professions with people working in other professions, the creative people were not more likely than people in other professions to be diagnosed with psychiatric disorders overall. However, the creative professionals were at an increased risk of having bipolar disorder, and in addition, people who were writers were more likely to be diagnosed with psychiatric disorders in general. Previous research has also shown that family members of people with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder are overrepresented in creative professions. The new study is partially confirming long held beliefs about commonalities between creativity and psychiatric symptoms as severe even as psychosis. Creative thinking occurs in rational conscious frames of mind not altered or transformed states. Therefore, having a full-fledged psychosis in which a person's rationality is altered does not and cannot realistically contribute to creativity. However, if someone had a family member who had a serious psychiatric disorder, the genetic variants that this person carries may translate into a diluted, if you will, form of a mental illness or genetic vulnerability to it that could, in fact, be conducive to creativity if the traits are mild enough that they do not interfere with a person's ability to think rationally. The study was published on June 8th in the journal Nature neuroscience. So there you have it, uh, perhaps some scientific basis for the long-held colloquial belief or even stereotype that there's a fine line between creativity and so-called madness. Next up on psychiatry today, some advice about keeping calm and carrying on for the sake of your long-term health. Well, let's look at what some researchers meant by that. Reacting positively to stressful situations, easier said than done, may play a key role in long-term health. In a study measuring adults' reactions to stress and how it affects their bodies, Researchers found that adults who fail to maintain positive moods such as cheerfulness or calm when faced with the minor stressors of everyday life appear to have elevated levels of inflammation. Furthermore, women can be at heightened risk. Inflammatory responses are part of the body's ability to protect itself via the immune system. However, chronic long-term inflammation can undermine health and appears to play a role in obesity, heart disease, and cancer. These findings add to a growing body of evidence regarding the health implications of affective reactivity, which means emotional response to daily stressors. The researchers reported their results in a recent edition of the journal Health Psychology. Researchers showed that the frequency of daily stressors in and of itself was less consequential for inflammation than how an individual reacted to those stressors. A person's frequency of stress may be less related to inflammation than responses to stress. It is how a person reacts to stress that is important. The findings also highlight the important but often discounted contributions of positive affect in naturalistic stress processes. Positive emotions and how they can help people in the event of stress have really been overlooked. In the short term, with illness or exercise the body experiences a high immune response to help repair itself. I should say that means extremely vigorous exercise. However, in the long term, heightened inflammatory immune responses may not be healthy. Individuals who have trouble regulating their responses may be at risk for certain age-related conditions, such as cardiovascular disease, or just general frailty and cognitive decline. A cross-sectional sample of 872 adults from the National Study of Daily Experiences reported daily stressors and emotional reactions for eight consecutive days. Blood samples of participants were obtained during a separate clinic visit and tested for markers of inflammation. They calculated reactivity scores to see how participants generally reacted to stressors. Then they used it to predict two markers of inflammation. The researchers used several different types of stressors Among them were arguments, and avoiding arguments at work, school, or home, being discriminated against, a network stressor, that is, a stressful event that happens to someone close to the subject, as well as other types of stressors. They examined both positive and negative affective reactions to stress, in other words, emotional, and compared the effects of stress exposure with responses to stressors. Little is known about the potential role of daily stress processes on inflammation. Much of the relevant past research with humans has focused on either chronic stress or acute laboratory-based stress. Methods that do not fully capture how people respond to naturalistic stressors in the context of daily life. The data came from the second wave of the Midlife in the United States study, a national survey designed to investigate health and well-being in midlife and older adulthood. Its goal is to expand understanding of how daily mood and stressful events may relate to inflammation and health. Well, it's all well and good to delineate the fact that positive emotional reactions to stress are better for your long-term health and reduce inflammation. But as I said when we first started talking about the article, reacting positively to stressful situations is much easier said than done. Uh, this is one point that the article about the research misses. Uh, some people are better at that than others. And for those who have trouble doing that, then they're going to need some help to be able to do that. Uh, for example, talking things through the counselor or therapist is one way to build up someone's reserves if they're not naturally resilient to stress. All right, well, time for another commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health-related news. After that, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with
4: Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
3: Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, and your source for all the latest and important mental health-related news. Well, next up on tonight's show, an article called Seven Ways That Anger is ruining your health. Well, we know that anger is very bad for your health in general. It's been documented for many decades now that <clears throat> severe anger is, for one thing, a risk factor for a heart attack and heart disease. Um, <clears throat> but in any case, I thought, well, uh, with that to start, let's see what this article has to say and to see if there's any more Useful information. Now, sometimes anger can actually be good for you, but only if it's addressed quickly and expressed in a healthy way. In fact, anger may possibly help some people think more rationally. However, unhealthy episodes of anger. When you hold it in for long periods of time, turn it inward or explode in rage can wreak havoc on your body. If you're prone to losing your temper, here are seven important reasons to stay calm. Number one, an angry outburst puts your heart at great risk. Okay, and this is what I was talking about uh, that we've known about for a long time. Uh, most physically damaging, is anger's effect on your cardiac health. In the two hours after an angry outburst, the chance of having a heart attack doubles. That's pretty scary. Think of that the next time you go into a rage. Repressed anger, where you express it indirectly, or go to great lengths to control it, is associated with heart disease. In fact, one study found the people with anger-proneness as a personality trait were at twice the risk of coronary disease than their less angry peers. To protect your heart, identify and address your feelings before you lose control. Constructive anger, the kind where you speak up directly to the person you are angry with and deal with the frustration in a problem-solving manner, is not associated with heart disease and is actually a very normal, healthy emotion. Well, that's true, and that's all well and good. But again, to be able to have that constructive anger and muster the self-control to speak up directly to the person you're angry with uh, without losing control, dealing with the frustration in a problem-solving manner again, that's great if you can do that. But all too often, easier said than done. Well, let's go on to number two. Anger ups your stroke risk. Right, well, anything that increases the risk of heart attack would normally also increase the risk of stroke. So this is no surprise. The article says one study found that there was a three times higher risk of having a stroke from a blood clot to the brain or bleeding within the brain during the two hours after an angry outburst. Wow, so if you really, really have an episode of rage uh, for the two hours after that, you're vulnerable to some pretty major health issues. Uh, for people with an aneurysm, in one of the brain's arteries, which of course you wouldn't know about, there was a six times higher risk of rupturing this aneurysm following an angry outburst. Now to learn to control those angry explosions, to move into positive coping, you need to first identify what your triggers are and then figure out how to change your response. Instead of losing your temper, your article recommends do some deep breathing, use assertive communication skills, and you might even need to change your environment by getting up and walking away. Well, again, like I was talking about with uh, the, the article we went over before the last commercial break, you know, it's one thing to know that keeping your cool is better for your health, obviously it is. But it's another thing to be able to do these things. Uh so <clears throat> some people you know have trouble controlling their anger, and even if you explain the health risks, that's not enough to get them to do better. Alright, well, number three, on the list of how anger ruins your health, it weakens your immune system. If you're angry all the time, you just might find yourself feeling sick more often. In one study, scientists found that in healthy people, simply recalling an angry experience from their past caused a six-hour dip in levels of the antibody immunoglobulin A, the cell's first line of defense against infection. If you're someone who's habitually angry, protect your immune system by turning to a few effective coping strategies. Assertive communication, effective problem solving, using humor, or restructuring your thoughts to get away from that black and white, all or nothing thinking. Those are all good ways to cope. But you've got to start by calming down. Number four, anger problems can make your anxiety worse. This is interesting. If you're a worrier to begin with, it's important to note that anxiety and anger can go hand in hand. In one study, researchers found that anger can aggravate symptoms of Generalized Anxiety Disorder, a condition characterized by an excessive and uncontrollable worry that interferes with a person's daily life. Not only were higher levels of anger found in people with Generalized Anxiety Disorder, but hostility, along with internalized, unexpressed anger in particular, contributed greatly to the severity of generalized anxiety disorder symptoms. I'd also like to note, it's very common for people with generalized anxiety disorder to manifest irritability. That's one of the most commonly reported symptoms, in fact. Number five, anger is also linked to depression. Numerous studies have linked depression with aggression and angry outbursts, especially in men. In depression, passive anger, where you ruminate about it but never take action, is common. Advice for someone struggling with depression mixed with anger is to get busy and stop thinking so much. Any activity which fully absorbs you is a good cure for anger taking up a sport doing a hobby any form of exercise these activities tend to fill our minds and pull our focus toward the present moment not leaving room left over for anger to stir when you when you got these other things going on and that's a good piece of practical advice and of course uh, <clears throat> the classical Description of depression, and going back to Freudian times, is that depression is anger turned inward against oneself. Now, number six, hostility can hurt your lungs. Not a smoker, you could still be hurting your lungs if you are a perpetually angry, hostile person. Scientists studied 670 men over eight years using a hostility scale scoring method to measure anger levels and assessed any changes in the men's lung function. The men with the highest hostility ratings had significantly worse lung capacity, which increased their risk of respiratory problems. Researchers theorized that an uptick in stress hormones, which are associated with feelings of anger, creates inflammation in the airways. This is the most obvious explanation, and I think it's a good explanation. But I had to admit, even though I studied issues like this for many, many, many years, this was the first time I'd heard about the effect of anger and hostility on the lungs. So if you already have asthma and that means you have overreactive airways and you add to that some anger and hostility, including potentially some major outbursts, then guess what? You could be looking at having uh, inflammation in your airways and trouble breathing. And if you happen to also be unlucky enough to be a smoker, then you're gonna compound those issues because you're already compromised. And lastly, number seven, anger can just plain shorten your life. Is it really true though that happy people live longer? Stress is very tightly linked to general health, but if you're stressed and angry, you'll shorten your lifespan. A study done over 17 years found that couples who hold in their anger have a shorter lifespan than those who readily say when they're mad. If you're not someone who's comfortable showing negative emotions, working with a therapist or practicing on your own to be more expressive could help. Learning to express anger in an appropriate way is actually a healthy use of anger. If someone infringes on your rights, you need to tell them. Directly tell people what you're mad about and what you need. Well, so there you have it, seven ways anger can ruin your health. Some good, very, you know, general advice, but way too short on specifics. I think the bottom line is that a lot of people who have trouble controlling their anger will need therapy. And it might be good to find a therapist who says they specialize or have a subspecialty in anger management issues. Uh, especially if you're prone to episodes of rages and it's gotten you in trouble at work or even with the law. Uh, but the bottom line is it's one thing to identify this as an issue. It's another thing for people to be able to act on it and be able to calm down and get their anger under control. A lot of people will need professional help to do that. All right, time for another commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health-related news after that.
2: or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life more information is also available on the website at www.atlantahealingcenter.com
3: this is georgia author doug dahlgren join me fridays at 11 a.m for a new show here on america's web radio we call it the prologue i'll be introducing you to other writers you may not have heard of yet that's fridays at 11 a.m here on america's web radio
0: You can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org. Or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
3: You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Well, in the previous segment, we talked about seven ways that anger is ruining your health. And coincidentally, I found this other article that also uses the number seven you're familiar with the famous uh <clears throat> books and all the copycats afterwards this seven habits of the most effective people uh, or however that uh, exactly goes well this article talks about seven ways that people practice good emotional hygiene and it's uh it was written by someone who um gives a lot of um speeches about emotional health and how well to maintain it so I thought okay well let's take a look at this and see what helpful advice there may be and after reading I did decide to bring it to you so let's see about these seven ways to tell if you practice good emotional hygiene and whether listening to this will help you adopt some of them We all set aside a few minutes a day to brush our teeth and take care of small physical injuries like cuts, scrapes, or sprains. But how many minutes a day do we set aside to take care of our emotional health? For most of us, the answer is none. Let me pause here for a second. I think that's an excellent point. Um, people neglect their emotional health and sometimes their physical health too, but doing things like exercising regularly, making sure you go to bed early enough, uh, making sure you set aside time for leisure and relaxation, um, maybe even taking time to do meditation or yoga or other things. These are all things that we can do to support our emotional hygiene. Just like brushing and flossing and no sweets is good for oral hygiene and so on and so forth. So I think if nothing else, just this concept of paying more attention to our emotional hygiene is huge. All right. So going on then. We sustain psychological injuries just as often as we do physical ones. Injuries like rejection, failure, or loss. While we all know how to take care of a cold or a cut so they don't get worse or infected, we have no clue how to treat the most common psychological wounds we all experience on a regular basis. This competence gap between our ability to care for our physical health and our ability to care for our psychological health is both unfortunate and puzzling I agree with that completely. How is it we spend more time taking care of our teeth than we do our emotional well-being? Good question. Developing emotional hygiene habits could improve our life satisfaction and emotional resilience, as well as our physical health and longevity. And that statement right there, that dovetails nicely with the couple of the other articles that I presented, in fact, the last uh, two articles that I presented on tonight's show about how keeping calm um, would be good for your long-term physical health and how anger ruins your physical health. Okay, now, so what is it that people who do practice good emotional hygiene do differently from the rest who don't? Here are seven of their good habits. And hopefully ways so that all of us can adopt them. Number one, they pay attention to emotional pain. Emotional pain is a sign of a psychological injury, just as physical pain is a sign of a physical injury. Well, doctors say don't ignore physical pain, right? Uh, especially being uh, attentive to potential signs of a heart attack. Well, you shouldn't ignore psychological pain when you feel it either, especially if the emotional distress you feel is strong, lasting, or distracting. Number two, learn to distinguish mild emotional wounds from those that require treatment. Most of us can tell if a cut is deep enough to require stitches or if a bandage would be sufficient we need to to develop the same know-how when it comes to psychological wounds. Generally, if you're in emotional distress and the emotional pain you feel is not easing, you might need to take action to treat the injury by, for example, speaking with a mental health professional. Number three, people who practice good Emotional hygiene boosts their self-esteem after a rejection. This is big. Listen to this. Rejections, which of course hurt our feelings and our confidence, can also do some real damage to our self-esteem. Avoid becoming self-critical after a rejection and instead try to boost your self-esteem by focusing on your strengths rather than your weaknesses. I think that's a great idea. And think of it this way. If your best and dearest friend in the whole world had suffered a severe rejection, you would do everything you could to try to boost their self-esteem, right? Well, think of those same things you would do for your best friend and do them for yourself. Number four, practitioners of good emotional hygiene regain feelings of control. After experiencing failure, failures can make us feel helpless and hopeless, and they can sap our motivation. One of the most important things you can do to counter these reactions is to focus on aspects of the task that you can improve and approach differently were you to try it again. In other words, don't just look at the hurdle and feel bad that it's there. Figure out your way around it. Well, again, right there, that's pretty good advice, but uh, sometimes people might need some help trying to figure out their way around something that they failed at previously. Number five, good emotional hygiene practitioners do not let unresolved feelings of guilt linger. I agree, this is huge. Guilty feelings can be useful in small doses, but when your guilty feelings are unresolved, they can be incredibly distracting and severely limit your ability to thrive and enjoy life. Therefore, it is important to take action and address unresolved guilty feelings by trying to receive forgiveness from the person you've wronged or from yourself if your guilt is self-generated. Uh, I agree this is huge in the vast majority of cases when people hold on to feelings like guilt or shame, it is just going to bring them down further. You cannot go back and change what happened in the past. So it is extremely maladaptive to hang on to these feelings. Uh, so if it's something you did that you're ashamed of, forgive yourself and move on and just vow to do better in the future. If it's something you feel bad about that you did to someone else, try as best you can to reach out and make amends. Um, If there is no way to contact them or they're no longer with us, writing a letter, even if you don't send it, um, is very helpful in terms of getting those feelings out. Number six, good emotional hygiene practitioners fill the voids after experiencing loss. It can take time to get over a loss, especially when it's significant. But while time does heal, you also need to fill in the voids the loss created. Give thought to various aspects of your life the loss has impacted. And when you feel ready, consider ways to add activities, passions, or people to address any unmet needs The loss has created very good advice. Uh, But again, sometimes people have a great deal of trouble rebounding from a significant loss or bereavement and uh, might need professional help with that. Now, lastly, number seven on the list of how good emotional hygiene practitioners uh, accomplish this. They change rumination and brooding into constructive problem-solving. Replaying the same distressing events in your head can lead to both passivity and depression. Make sure to use problem-solving approaches to gain insight and learn what you can from the incident and then avoid getting stuck in an emotionally painful loop By distracting yourself, the same thought or feeling pops into your mind. Again, this is easier said than done, okay? And it's not hard to see that people who have more resilience would be practitioners of good emotional hygiene, including this method. It's sort of self-fulfilling, self-reinforcing, right? Uh, But again, you know, sometimes people have trouble getting these negative thoughts to stop playing over and over and over in their mind and not uh, be able to do it without professional help like therapy. Developing new habits like these is never easy, but adopting strong emotional hygiene certainly will set you on the path to greater psychological resilience, health, and life satisfaction. So it's very much worth the effort required. Well, I found this very interesting and in, um especially the parts about letting go of guilt, which is something I talk to uh, patients uh, all the time, um how to try to actively rebound after a rejection or a failure, um and just being aware of emotional wounds as it were, of not ignoring emotional pain. Um, and figuring out when it's severe enough to warrant treatment or not. These are very important things. And then, you know, how to deal with a loss. Uh, this is very difficult for a lot of people, and, uh, you know, sometimes channeling the feelings of grief and bereavement into certain activities uh, that turn into something positive or adaptive to uh, honor the memory of the lost person. May help, uh, you know. So, so again, the article has a lot to tell us that's beneficial. Um, but again, my point, and I know you're probably sick of my going over this. It depends on having a certain level of resilience to do all these things. And uh, if someone doesn't, they may need help with that. Well, it's time to wrap up tonight's show. If you have, a, I hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until the next time we get together. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening.